We were talking today about uh, portraits of Jesus. Last week we looked at the portrait of Jesus in terms of him being the God revealer. That Jesus came and, and, and showed us who God really is. His life, his action, his teachings, the way he, he hung out with tax collectors and sinners, the way he touched people, interacted with people, is all a theology of who God is. And uh, the reality of Jesus tells us that, that God looks just like Jesus. And if your view of God doesn't look like Jesus, then there's something off with your view of God. Jesus is God in the, full, the fullness. And so that's what we talked about last week. Today we're going to look at another portrait of Jesus. And that is the portrait of Jesus being the one who, who, who challenges us to, to radically risk when it comes to loving others. And if there's no better story than the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and that's why I called this sermon the, the Good Person You Hate. Because uh, to the listeners of the Good Samaritan, uh, the Samaritan was a despised person. Uh, the Samaritan was that person that uh, they hated. And Jesus makes him the hero of the story. And I wish somehow I could portray how radical the story of the Good Samaritan would have been to the, the first century hearers. And there's just no way to, to emphasize how radical it was. But it's still somewhat radical today even. So let me read the story. It says, One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to, the, to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. And so the story begins with an expert in religious law asking Jesus a question. And this expert in religious law was trying to test Jesus. And the expert in religious law would be similar to maybe a theologian today or a scholar. He was an expert in all the, 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 the first century laws. He would have been an expert. He would have memorized, for sure, the, the law of Moses, the 613 commands. 
he would be an expert in all the thousands of laws they had to, to figure out how to obey those 613 commands. He was an expert in the law. And he comes up to test Jesus. Because one thing we know is that, that many of the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a threat to their system, and so they were constantly trying to trap him, getting him to say something where they could finally say, look, he is a heretic. You don't need to listen to him. And so he tests him by asking this question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And, and we know from the New Covenant perspective that, that right away this person is off on the, on the wrong foot. <laughs> To think that we, we need to do something to inherit eternal life brings us into religion, where we need to do certain actions or learn certain things or behave a certain way or follow certain laws in order to be right with God is, is right off the bat uh, the, wrong, the wrong step. I mean, scriptures say we are saved by faith, and, and there's nothing we can boast about. If, if we do something, then we have something to boast about. Look what I did. So we asked Jesus, what should I do? And Jesus, a lot of times in the gospel, when the Pharisees come up to trap him, tends to often respond with a, with a question back. And it's kind of a good way to handle sometimes difficult people in your life is to just ask them a question back. And that's what Jesus seemed to do. Uh, Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? After all, you're an expert in the law of Moses. Uh, what is the, what is, how do you read this? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, right, do this and you will live because those were the, the two greatest commands out of all the 613 in the Old Covenant. The two greatest commands in the Old Covenant were to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And as, of course, we talked about maybe a month ago ago, Jesus, under the New Covenant, reduces those two down to one, where in the New Covenant, there's just one primary command, which is to love as Jesus loved us. So Jesus says, do this and you will live. But the reality is none of us can do that perfectly. <laughs> we can't love God with all our heart and all our strength and all our soul because we, we always, you know, heart is drawn to other things. And, and, and we can't love our neighbor as ourselves because, you know, our love isn't always that, that broad. Now, it says here that the man wanted to justify his actions. And the moment you think you have to do something to earn salvation, it will always lead you into three traps. It would lead you to pride, or it leads you to despair, or it will lead you to trying to justify your actions. It, it could lead you to pride, thinking, well, if I have to earn my salvation, look how good I am doing. Look how much better I am than all those other folks out there. You know, I'm, the, I'm some sort of super Christian. I'm sort of some super religious person, and I do so well. If everybody would just be like me, the world would be a better place, and, and you end up in pride, or you end up in despair. You know, I just can't do it. You know, I, I can't not loving God with all my heart and soul. I keep, you know, running after other things or, you know, I got mad at my neighbor or my coworker and say, I can't love my neighbor as myself. And, and so folks end up in despair saying, I can't do it. It's impossible. I can't measure up to those things. And, you know, I might as well just give up. So it can lead you to pride. It can lead you to despair. Or it can lead you to where this religious expert ended up. And that is justifying your actions. Because this religious leader knew Jesus that he was loving tax collectors and sinners, he was touching lepers. I mean, that Jesus' love was a very, very gigantic. 
But the expert in religious law, his view of loving your neighbor was actually quite small. And his view is just you had to, to love your Israelite neighbor. And so he, he feels that, that he has to justify why he only needs to love his neighbors so he can somehow fit into these rules so he can earn his salvation. Let me tell you something. We don't earn our salvation. We receive it. We just rest in Jesus. Jesus has come. He says to those people who are under the law, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, who are working so hard to earn favor with God. Just come to me and rest and receive the gift of rest from, from Jesus. And, and I hope you're able to rest in Jesus. That I hope when you think of your relationship with God that you really believe what it says in Romans, that you are at peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And, and this is what God is moving constantly people into out of thinking they have to earn a relationship to just, just receiving it and enjoying that relationship. But this man, because of the system, wants to justify his actions. And the reason was is because in Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18, this is where this command comes from. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, just a few verses later in Leviticus 19, there was this phrase, and it says this, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like a native-born Israelite, native-born Israelites, and love them as you love yourself. And so right in this very chapter, uh, love your neighbor as yourself is this, this command to love the foreigner that they were to love the foreigner as much as they were to love their, their, their native-born Israelite. But you know, this is hard. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to love people that are different than you. It's, it's very difficult to love foreigners. It's very difficult to love people who have a different belief system than you, who have a different theology than you, who are a different race than you, who come from a different country than you. You know, it's hard to love people who are different. And, and if we think we have to earn our salvation, then, then we need to justify why, why this is hard and why we don't want to do this. And so, what happened was, and, and we all tend to do this, if you're actually honest with your theology, we all tend to pick and choose verses <laughs> to make life easier, that they uh, went back to Leviticus 19.18, again, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. The phrase right before that says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so they said, well, right in context, Loving your neighbor yourself had to do with, with your fellow Israelite. And so the idea that most of the first century people had was to love your neighbor as yourself meant to love your fellow Israelite. I didn't have to love the foreigner. I didn't have to love those who were different. I didn't have to love the, the Samaritan or the Gentile or the Roman, you know, the enemies. And, and so they, they, had, they justified themselves. This religious leader knew that Jesus had a bigger understanding and it seemed to be a threat well, maybe, maybe I'm not doing enough to earn my salvation. And so trying to justify thinking that you only had to love your fellow Israelite. And we, we fall into that trap sometimes too, where we try to justify why don't we have to love those, why I don't have to love those people who are different than me or that person of a different religion or race. You know, they're different than me. So, I mean, again, this story is such a challenge even today, but this story was just completely radical for the first century listener. Uh, Donald Craybill said this, bitter tension divided Jews and Samaritans. 
Samaria was sandwiched between Judea and Galilee. The Samaritans emerged about 400 BCE from mixed marriages between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews regarded them as half-breed bastards. Uh, the Samaritans had, were, were, were Jews, but they intermixed with, with other races when the Babylonians and Assyrians had taken over northern Israel, and so they were kind of half-breeds, and they saw them as, as worshiping kind of a different god, and they worshiped God in a different place. In fact, the Samaritans had built a, built a temple, and, and, and the Jewish people in Judea said, you know, you've you got to worship God in Jerusalem alone, uh, but they had their own temple, and so the, the Jews went and destroyed the Samaritan temple, and then the Samaritans, in turn, they went and scattered bones in the Jewish temple to des desecrate their temple. And so there was this war between them. In fact, uh, there, there was such a divide between them that if a Jewish person wanted to go from Judea to Samaria, or to uh, Galilee, I mean, Samaria was, Samaria was right in the middle, they would actually spend hours and hours and hours extending their journey to walk all the way around their territory. So they didn't have to associate with a Samaritan. They were unclean. They were half-breed bastards. And in fact, we, we see this, this idea even when Jesus went into Samaria. You remember when Jesus meets the woman at the well? It says, the woman was surprised, and it says this, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. Uh, they just didn't associate with each other. It was like the greatest enemies. It would be like the I don't know, great enemies, whoever your worst enemy is today. I mean, that was the Samaritan. We see even this attitude in the, the disciples. You remember this, this story in Luke 9 where it says, Jesus sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of that village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Again, Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jewish. They were going to Jerusalem. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. They were like, we don't want a Jewish person in our town. I mean, we're enemies. So they didn't welcome Jesus. Now, when James and John, who were Jewish, saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? <laughs> Those evil Samaritans, they're awful. We should just consume them because, you know, they're God's enemies. They're our enemies. Let's burn them up. And, of course, Jesus rebukes them because Jesus came to bring life, not death. There was a crazy controversy between these two groups of people. Now, as we enter the story, we maybe just want to briefly ask, and that is, who is your Samaritan? Who is that person or that people group or that race or that religious belief or that doctrinal view for you that is like Samaria? That whenever you come across that kind of person with that view or that background, it just, just makes your blood boil and you're just, you just want to call down fire from heaven <laughs> and consume them. Well, it's those folks that Jesus actually makes the hero of this story. In the end, it's those folks that Jesus actually says was, was actually closer to the will of God than the listeners of this story. This is a radical story. It's radical today, but it was crazy radical back then. And so Jesus replies with this story. To the Jewish man, so this was not a Roman enemy, this was not a, even a Samaritan enemy or a Gentile enemy, this was a fellow Jewish person, was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's this, this kind of 30 kilometer stretch, which is kind of deserty, it was rugged, it was kind of steep terrain in some places, and it was attacked by bandits. They, they stripped him of his clothes beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. And so 
I mean, he was stripped naked. I mean, often in those days, you could tell who a person was by what they wore. You could tell if they were a Roman because they wore Roman clothes. You could tell if they were a Jewish person because they wore Jewish clothing. You could tell if they were a Samaritan because they wore Samaritan clothing. But this person was stripped naked. You could not tell what kind of person was, what their religion was, their background was. It was just a naked person on the side of the road. And he's half dead, so he's probably conked out, knocked out. And by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. And then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. And so Jesus says, the first two people who come along are, are kind of who the first century people would think were their heroes. I mean, a priest and a temple assistant, these were the folks who got to go very, very close to the presence of God in the temple. They could go to the, the court of the priests. Uh, they could go closer to God than anyone else except for the, 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 the high priest. These were the heroes of the, the folks in the land. And, and they walked by, and Jesus says, they crossed by on the other side of the road. Didn't cross by in the middle of the road, but totally as far away as possible. Now, why was that? Well, it was because of their religious rules. You see, the, the priests and the temple assistants or the, the Jewish people of those days, I mean, they had laws. Again, they were following up the old covenant law, and there was a law that said that if you came in contact with a dead body, you would be unclean for a week. And some of them actually thought if your shadow even came in contact with a dead body, you would be unclean for a week. And then after that week, you had to go through ritual bathing to, to cleanse yourself, to become clean again. And so you can picture this priest coming by and realizing, well, this man might be dead. I don't know, but you know, if I do go close to him and touch him, I'm going to be unclean for a week. Then I can't serve in the temple. Then I can't hang out with my family. This would be a big mess. So I'm going to cross by on the other side to make sure my shadow doesn't even touch that body. And so the priest walks by and the temple assistant actually walks by. Um, and, and Jesus is not saying that's a good thing. Now, Jesus is saying what the priest did and what the temple assistant did was not the right thing, was not a loving thing, was not loving your neighbor. Now, what kept the priest and the temple assistant from loving their neighbor in this situation? It was actually their religious rules. It was they put their religious rule, I don't want to come in contact with a dead body because I'll be unclean, ahead of actually loving this person. And sometimes religion, rules and rituals, can actually be a barrier to the flow of love. I mean, sometimes we can put our religious values or religious you know, rules ahead and they become more important than actually loving people. And this is part of what Jesus is challenging in this text. I mean, this text is challenging on multiple levels, but one of them is to make sure that the love actually stays in the right place, that love rules and reigns in our life, not our religious rules and rituals. And the Bible tells us this in various places. I mean, we can look at 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians 3, where it talks about how the letter of the law kills but the Spirit pours out life, or knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, where, where sometimes the religious rules can kill love. They can be a barrier to love, but love is what builds up. Love is what heals. Jesus, in Matthew 12, said this, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companion, companions were hungry? 
he went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. David and his companions broke the law of God. They broke religious rules. Why? Because love is more important. A lot of people are the other way around. They will never bend their religious rules and laws, and they put the religious rules and laws ahead of love. This is what the priest did. This is what the temple assistant did. They said, my rules are more important than loving this person. Jesus points out David here, who actually says, no, love is more important than law. And this was coming, of course, because Jesus was constantly breaking the law. He was breaking the Sabbath rules. I mean, telling people to pick up their mat and walk and mixing things on the Sabbath. And, and the Pharisees were freaking out and saying, you're breaking the religious rules. And Jesus says, no, I'm doing something more important than rules. I am loving. I am healing. I am touching. Love should reign ahead of a religious rules and, 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 and rituals. Uh, we see that in Matthew 5 as well. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, it doesn't say, well, just keep on obeying the law. You've got to make sure you do your religious rules and sacrifices first. No, Jesus says, no, love is higher. <laughs> Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Love must take precedence over religious rules and rituals, or Mark chapter 7, again, where the Pharisees were putting their religious rules ahead of loving people. Jesus rebukes them when he says, you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. I mean, First Peter 4, 8 says, most important of all. It doesn't say most important of all is to follow your religious rules. <laughs> it doesn't say most important of all is to follow your religious rituals. No, it says most important of all Continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. If you put your religious rules and laws ahead of love, that doesn't cover a multitude of sins. If anything, we, we always err on the side of love. We don't err on the side of law. We don't err aside on rules and, and, and rituals. We always err on the side of love. That is one of the, the, the things that comes out of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's one of the things that comes out of looking at the ministry of Jesus. And then you err on the side of love, even if you err when you're loving, it's okay because love covers a multitude of sins. It's the only thing you can err in, if you will, that's actually going to cover mistakes. And so Jesus, subtly in the story, is just saying, look, their religious rules were actually became a barrier to love. And suddenly we can actually do that. I mean, I've had numerous conversations with people sometimes when, when I'm talking about love, they say, well, you know, we've got to define love and we've got to put love in a box because, you know, love needs to be contained because suddenly they're saying there are certain kinds of people that we shouldn't love. That's just not gospel. Uh, love is the highest command, the greatest command, and it's the one that covers a multitude of sins. Now, in the story, there's a pattern of three. And all good jokes, or a lot of good jokes at least, and a lot of good stories always have this pattern of three. You know the story, the three little pigs, or you know the three men walk into a bar kind of joke. There's always this pattern of three. And, and, and Jesus starts this pattern. Again, the hearers of the story would have not heard this story. And so the first person Jesus mentions is a priest. That's a hero to them. A temple assistant, 
Someone else is kind of a hero because they're, they're, they're working in God's temple. And so you would expect this third person to come along is going to be another Jewish person. I mean, uh, another Jewish person, and this person's going to rescue this, this hurt person on the side of the road. And Jesus does the craziest thing because the third person in the story is not another Jewish person. It is the direct enemy of the hearers of the story. Jesus says, then a despised Samaritan came along. Now you could just sense the blood boiling in that expert in religious law because they're the people who desecrated their temple. They were the half-breeds. They're the people who worshiped a different God in a different place. And, and it's just it's like, this is not right. In fact, we know how much the Samaritans were hated because in John chapter 8, you know, after they were trying to condemn Jesus, and they eventually come up with the worst phrase. If you can think of the worst phrase to call somebody, in Jesus' day, this was it. They called Jesus, it says, the people retorted, you Samaritan devil. <laughs> I mean, Samaritans were up there with the devil in their mind. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And sometimes those people we hate, sometimes those people we don't like, from God's view, can actually be the hero of the story. I mean, God sees them all sometimes from a different perspective than we do. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story, and so this despised Samaritan comes along. And we saw the man. This man feels compassion. Again, the Samaritan was the one who put love ahead of religious rules. The priests in the temple system didn't see that man with compassion. They saw him, they saw that person through their religion. If I touch that person, I'm going to become unclean, so I'm not going to have compassion for that person. They didn't see him through the eyes of love. The enemy of the, the uh, Jewish people, the Samaritans in those days, I mean, uh, becomes the hero of the story and actually has compassion for him, is actually doing the will of God. And so he goes over to him, the Samaritan, and, and soothes his wound with olive oil and wine and bandages them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I am here. I mean, this, this was a lot of sacrifice this, this Samaritan uh, uh, displayed. I mean, first of all, actually stopping is a bit of a sacrifice because for all he know, maybe it was a setup. Maybe he was going to be jumped. Maybe he was going to be robbed. Uh, he didn't know who that person was at first. Maybe he was the Jewish. Maybe he was Roman. Maybe he was another Samaritan. He took the risk of, I mean, maybe that man was going to get up and get angry with him. He didn't know. But he uses his own supplies. I mean, maybe he was on a journey to go see somewhere, and he had a meeting. He had an appointment, and he takes a lot of time out of his schedule because, I mean, they were just walking and had a donkey. And, I mean, it would have taken maybe a day or two, it seems, out of his schedule to actually do this. I mean, a lot of us can't even spare five minutes. A lot of us can't even spare 10 minutes to help somebody. I mean, most of us would never take a day <laughs> to go help someone who is just a stranger. But this guy takes probably a couple days to actually help him. I mean, this is radical love. He risked himself by going into a Jewish town. Again, knowing how much the Jews and Samaritans hated each other, the Samaritan went in and spent money and, and actually handed this man over to eventually the, the, the innkeeper and spent some time there. I mean, there's a lot of risk. And this is another point that comes out of the story. And that is, we need to learn sometimes how to, to, to love in such a way that even goes past the barrier of risk. I mean, 
You might look at it as, as a dangerous unselfishness. There's Martin, Link, uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who do, had this phrase where he says, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. See, a lot of us in our society today, you picture this scene, we come across this, this is kind of a dangerous situation, this is probably not safe, I'm going to keep going. We're actually not willing to risk a lot to love people. This Samaritan risked a whole lot. He put himself in danger to, to love. I mean, you think about the kind of love of Jesus where he says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for another person. I mean, to love deeply takes risk. Even, even in our loving relationships, even in marriage, if you want your love to go deeper, it requires risk. risk because we know in intimate relationship, love is directly related to vulnerability. The more risk and vulnerability you're able to put into your marriage, the better your marriage will be. Love requires risk. And so when it comes to loving those who are different than you, it's going to require some risk. It's going to require some checks in your spirit to, to hold yourself back when you are loving that person who is of a different faith than you or a different background than you. I mean, Jesus in Luke 6 says, if you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? And the reality is a lot of our love is simply that. It's love like the priest. It's love like the temple assistant. We'll, we'll, we'll love those who love us, and we'll just keep in our little religious system and keep ourselves safe. But those other people out there, or you know, those things that stretch my religious boundaries, and I'm, I'm not going there. One of the challenges of this text is to stretch our view of love and to risk more in love. You know, they've done... Uh, a few different, you know, sort of live Good Samaritan studies, and you can read about them. I mean, one of them uh, showed that, that, our, that we really just, again, we like to love those who kind of look like us. We like to love those who are similar to us. We like to love those people that make us feel safe. We don't like to love those who are different than us. I mean, one study is, it was on a very busy sidewalk. They had an actor who dressed up in, in uh, like clothes. He looked like a, like a, like a homeless person. And he walked through the street and he pretended to have a heart attack. And so he grabbed his chest and, and there's all these people around and he stumbles and he falls to the ground and just boom, goes limp. Virtually every time, nobody did a thing. Almost every time, people would just walk by him. He's lying there on the ground. People saw him fall and they walked by him. Rarely did actually someone ever stop. Then they revamped the, the Good Samaritan study and they had some guy dressed in a business suit and did the exact same thing, grabbed his chest and fell over, and every time, immediately, someone stopped to help him. The only difference was the clothing. Because the reality is, we like to love people who look like us. We like to love people who look like they have it all together. We like to love people who are similar to us, and someone maybe in a business suit, you know, some people on a busy sidewalk in New York could maybe relate to more, you know, but a homeless person, they're different. Maybe they're going to hurt me. Maybe it's not safe. You know, maybe they got a disease or, you know, again, Jesus is pushing us to risk a little bit, to get out of our safety a little bit and be like this Samaritan. They did another famous study in the 70s, and this is with people who were training to be pastors, training to be ministers. And uh, they assigned each of those graduate students uh, a lesson on, uh, they had to do a three to five minute talk on you know, what it's like being a minister, or, you know, what, what it means to be a pastor. Some of those people were given 
the assignment that part of their little three to five minute talk had to include something about the parable of the Good Samaritan. So they had to study the, 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 the Good Samaritan. And so these people came up, some had the Good Samaritan in mind, some didn't. And so when they arrived to the place where they're supposed to give their little speech, they told them, ah, there's been a change, you need to go to another building across campus. So they had to leave and they had a little thing staged where right in the hallway, there was someone slumped over. And they found that there was actually no difference between those who had studied the Good Samaritan and those who hadn't and whether the person stopped or not. So maybe the sermon's not going to help anybody. I don't know because <laughs> the study says, if you know the story, it seems to not help. What did make the difference in the study was because they told some people, you're really late, you need to go, you need to go now. And other people, they said, actually, you have a little bit of time, you don't need to rush, but you, know, you need to eventually get there. The people who had more time were more willing to stop. And this is a warning for us in our culture because we are in a very busy culture. And just like religion and our rules can become a barrier to love, so can our busyness can be a barrier to love. I mean, because sometimes, like the Samaritan, it takes a lot of time to love people who are different than us and hurting than us. And, 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 and it's just important that, that again, love must take precedent, precedence over all those other things in, in our life. And so Jesus ends, he, he looks to this expert in religious law after telling the story, and he says, now which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? And of course, the religious expert in the law would have associated with the priest and the temple assistant because he would have done the same thing because they put their religious rules ahead of love often. That was more important because God is all about the, the rules and if you're going to earn your salvation, you better follow the rules because God's all about the rules. And the man replies, the one who showed him mercy. Now notice, he couldn't even say Samaritan. I mean, Jesus says, you know, the priest and the temple assistant and the Samaritan, but this guy, he can't even bring himself to say well, the Samaritan was the hero of the story because that would have been so radical. It would have been such, I mean, it would have been offensive to him, the story. But then Jesus says to him, yes, now go and do the same. New Testament professor Alan Klepeber said, by depicting the Samaritan as the hero of the story, therefore, Jesus demolished all boundary expectations, social position, race, religion, or region, count for nothing. The alteration of the expected sequence by naming the third character as a Samaritan not only challenges the hearer to examine the stereotypes regarding Samaritans, but it also invalidates all stereotypes. Community can no longer be defined or limited by such terms. Jesus' parable, therefore, shatters the stereotypes of social boundaries and class divisions and renders void any system of religious quid pro quo. Neighbors do not recognize social class. Eternal life, the life of the age to come, is that quality of life characterized by showing mercy for those in need, regardless of their race, religion, or region, and with no thought of reward." And what's really weird about the story is, again, in the religious expert and religious law in his mind, I mean, I mean, he had the right belief system and he had the right faith, and, and, and Jesus makes this person of a different belief system the hero of the story, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, it was the Samaritan who was doing the will of God, not the priest and not the temple assistant. 
And there's a little challenge in there for us because sometimes people of another faith might be closer to the will of God than people in our own faith. I mean, this Samaritan was closer to the will of God in this situation than the priest or the temple assistant. And if love is such a high ideal in the New, in new Covenant, then there are sometimes we may run into people who are closer to the will of God outside than inside. And I don't even have to say this because we all know this. We've all met people who would not call themselves Christians who are far more loving and generous than maybe certain Christians we do know in the church. Uh, Jesus, again, makes the wrong person the hero of the story. And it was a challenge to them. It's, a, it's still a challenge to us. Especially understanding that loving people is the primary way we love God. Loving people is the primary we love, way we love God. And that's why the story is so, so important. Uh, that the Samaritan becomes a hero of the story. And Jesus says to us, to the religious leader, go and do likewise. Risk radically. Love people. Even if it means you've got to bend your religious rules to, to love. You love, 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 love. Because under new covenant theology, the primary way we love God is through loving people. Now, we love God in a lot of ways. We worship. We read the Bible. We spend time in prayer. Those are all ways we love God, and those are vitally important. Those are beautifully important. But under the new covenant, the primary way we show love to God is by loving others. And this is all over the New Testament. I mean, Jesus himself says in John 15, you are my friends, or you could say you are loving God, or you're loving me, if you do what I command. And clearly, in context, his command is to love one another. I mean, he's clearly saying, you are my friend, you are loving me, you are loving God if you love each other. The primary way you're showing love to Jesus, you're showing love to others, is by loving each other. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 25. When you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When we're helping out the poor and the hurting and that person who's beat up on the side of the road, Jesus says, you're loving me. What a great way to love me. I mean, you remember when, when Saul, before he was Paul, was persecuting the Christians and, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because the way Saul was treating the Christians was the way he was loving God. I mean, the way we love people reflects the way we love God. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except, and it doesn't say here, love God. We, we think that it would, but it says, owe no, no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It doesn't say here, the one who loves God has fulfilled the law. It says the one who loves another person has fulfilled the law. Now, obviously, we love God. That's important. That's the central, Jesus is the central aspect of our faith is death and resurrection, our connection with God, but the primary way we show that is by loving other people. It actually fulfills the law, it says here. Or uh, John chapter 2, verse 8, obey the royal law. Now, what is the royal law? Is it loving God? Uh, we would we'd just kind of assume so, but that's actually not what James says. Obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. And here it is. Here's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's the royal law. It's the one law. It's, the, again, the one command of the, the new covenant or Galatians 5, and we've looked at this verse, verse so many times, <laughs> but it says the only thing that counts 
is faith working through love. Or 1 John 4.20, someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer. That person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we, uh, if, if, if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. Or uh, 2 John 1.6 says, love means doing what God has commanded us. And he has commanded us to love one another just as you heard from the beginning. And so part of the point of the, of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is to not be like the priest, to not be like the temple assistant, but to be like the Samaritan who actually expresses his love for God through loving people deeply. As Brooks Cavey, who said, imagine what it would be like if each of us looked at every human being we met with the initial thought, this is an infinitely precious image bearer of God. What a privilege to be with them. I know I have so much to learn from them and so much love to offer them. Every person you meet of a different religion, different race, a different background, different sexual ethic, whatever it might be, is someone who is created in the very image of God and they are worthy of love. And so, Father, I thank you for your love for us. And God, I thank you for your love for each and every single person on this planet. And God, I thank you for your desire to see us love those people. I love those people that you love. And God, I think you haven't made this, this world complicated. That we can express love to you by just loving those people we run into during the week. Uh, showing love to them and showing that they are, are valuable in our eyes. God, we pray for help in loving those who are difficult. God, I want to justify myself, my, justify myself all the time with those who are hard to, to, to love, but God, may you just humble us. May you humble us with this story that we would love those who are hard. You would help us to love those who are different. You help us to see the image of God in every single person we meet. In Jesus' name, amen.